God's Word. Romans chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 14. And remember what just preceded this. Uh, He just told the Roman readers, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Just imagine reading this and that pause. Well, here's where we pick up. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make the riches of his glory for vessels of of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Father, we come before you needing help to understand this. For many of us, this is a hard and confusing section of Scripture. But we know, Lord, that when we come to your word, it is light. We know that it repairs us where we didn't even know we were broken, that it actually straightens out our thoughts where we didn't even know they were knotted up. We look forward and we need your help by the light of your Spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. It has been freezing cold the last couple of days, yeah? I'm going to start out maybe with a little bit of a warm story to maybe get us to thaw out a little bit to hear this text. Imagine, if you will, a young girl named Kayla, and Kayla is uh, living on her block, and she knows that it's the hottest day of summer coming up the next day, but it's also the same day that the block has decided to have one of these block, part, block uh, garage sales where everybody kind of comes together. So Kayla is a little entrepreneur, and she decides, I'm going to make some really good sweet tea. And I'm going to sell it, make a little money while everybody's coming into this little block sale. So she goes to her next door neighbor, realizing she's going to need help. And she says to her next door neighbor, hey, Robin, Robin, I'm going to make a little sweet tea. I've got it. I'll put it all together. But if you help me out, 
I'll give you $3 if you just simply work from 9 o'clock to 12 o'clock. It's going to be hot. You can drink all the sweet tea you want. I'll give you 3 bucks. And Robin's like, I'm in. And Kayla was like, we're going to do this. So people show up. People are walking up, and they're, it's hot. And they go over to good old Kayla and Robin's table, and guess what they do? They start to buy sweet tea. And, oh, my goodness, the first person takes a sip and says, this is amazing. I mean, this is like better than McAllister sweet tea. I mean, this is good stuff. And they start Facebooking their friends, and they start getting things out there. Well, the line starts to build, and Kayla, the entrepreneur, realizes, oh, boy, I'm going to need a little bit more help. So Kayla runs across the street to her, her uh, good friend, Sandra, and says, Sandra, 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 look, look, about two more hours, I want to be selling some lemonade, I mean, some, some sweet tea. If you come over, I'll give you three bucks. And Sandra's like, yeah, I'll make a little bit of money. So Sandra jumps in there. She's selling the sweet tea. People are sipping it. And somebody takes a little sip and says, oh, my goodness. I mean, this is good as, this is good as Francie's, Francie Schroeder's sweet tea. And it, word gets out. And somebody else is like, man, this is like, this is Pam Sifford. This is as good as her sweet tea. And, I mean, word is getting all over the neighborhood. And all of a sudden, Kayla realizes, I'm going to need a little bit more help. So she runs to her other next-door neighbor. And she says uh, to Susie, Susie, I'll give you three bucks if you just come on out and work for me. It's 11 o'clock. We'll shut down at 12. Susie comes over. Well, it's quite a hit. The girls go into the garage to get a little bit of shade. And uh, Kayla, the entrepreneur, it's time to pay up. She made a lot of money. Kayla walks up to Susie and says, Susie, I said I was going to give you uh, $3. And she gives $3 to Susie. Well, Robin is looking, and her face just kind of changed all of a sudden. I mean, she was all kind of happy, but it just kind of changed. And then Sandra was kind of like, what is going on here? And Kayla gave $3 to Sandra and $3 to Kayla. And Kayla, uh, I'm sorry, $3 to uh, Robin. And Robin was the one that said, you know what? I don't like you anymore. And Kayla's like, what do you mean you don't like me anymore? And she said, this is not fair. Now, I wonder if you were there and listening in on this, would you agree with Robin's experience? Well, this is exactly what was happening with the Roman readers as Paul was explaining the electing grace of God. As many of them were saying, wait a second here. Something feels unfair. Is God unfair? I wonder if you've ever asked that question. Romans 9, 14, it says it this way. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul gives a quick answer. By no means. And what we're going to find out today is what Paul does, he could just simply sort of punch his audience in the face with a hundred facts about God, but he realizes that the stories in Scripture will be able to explain the nature of God. So what he does in his own way, is he posts kind of three Instagrams, three sort of 15-second little videos that will help the people realize, is God unfair? And he's going to tell some stories to explain the nature of God. The caption of the first Instagram is going to say, God's electing grace is merciful. The second Instagram is, God's electing grace is mysterious. And the third one that he's going to send out is God's electing grace is missional. Verse 15, here's the first Instagram. It's a quick little blip. It says this. Is God unfair? 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, for many of us, we don't know this story. If you were listening in on Paul talking, you would have known this story. The Exodus story was the biggest story that those that were Jews and those being brought into the faith, they would have known this story. So let me retell it to you so you can get some color into this little Instagram. A million people experience the rescue mission by Moses after dealing with Pharaoh and all of his stubbornness, and they go out into the wilderness, and they are rescued. They are free. And Moses goes to have some time with God, and the people look around and don't see Moses anymore. And they decide, where is Moses? Where is God? And they go over to Aaron, and they say, we need to make ourselves a God. And Aaron puts together this golden calf, and they start to worship this golden calf. Moses comes back down and finds the people of God who were just rescued by God saying, we're done with that God, we've created our own. And Moses immediately says, this needs to be judged. 3,000 people are killed. And then God sends a plague and they're suffering. But what's amazing is that most of the nation did not experience judgment. And Moses goes back to God and says, God, listen, this is terrible what just happened. I'm representing them. I'm a little concerned that a couple thousand people have lost their lives. I need to know who you are. I need to know that if you elected our nation and you just did the biggest rescue mission of all time and then our people have just basically said, we've forgotten about you already, I need to know who you are and will you be present with us? Please, just show me your glory. That was kind of the way of saying, if you could just turn yourself inside out and reveal who you are, i got to know who you are because our nation's in a mess right now. And here's what God says. He says, you want to know who I am at my core? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You ever hear the phrase, boys will be boys? That's because boys have a nature. What God was saying to Moses is, I could give you a real long answer, but I do what I do. And you know what I do? I do mercy. It's amazing. I was thinking, I don't want to trivialize this, but if God were a bowl of ice cream and it was an infinite bowl and you kept taking bite after bite after bite and it was vanilla, which is my particular favorite flavor, every single bite would be vanilla. If you could not get to the bottom of God without tasting the flavor of what? Mercy. So Moses is saying, are you going to leave us? Is the electing presence of God going to be with us? Are you just going to give up on us? And God's like, you want to know who I am at my core? I will have mercy. Well, it makes us think, well, what is this concept? If it's such a core concept, what is it? Mercy is compassion in action. A lot of us will feel bad about somebody. I mean, I get the feeling whenever I'm sort of watching television and that one channel comes on with the little puppy dogs that are in the cats and they're looking for owners. Like in my gut, I get that sort of merciful sensation of all oh, these poor little animals, right? Well, that, we all get these feelings in life of something or someone in misery 
But what mercy and compassion do, this combination when God says, I'll have mercy and compassion, it's not just a feeling, but it's, I'm going to go down into the mess, down into the ruin and wreckage of humanity, and I am not just going to feel an emotion within me that gets evoked, this visceral reaction, but I'm actually going to do something to alleviate it. This is what mercy is. Now, there's a little something, though, about the mercy that we see of God in Scripture. There's a legal aspect. What I mean by that is, it's not just that you see someone in misery and you then go to pardon it, but legally that individual has done something to actually offend the authority that's charged with giving justice. In other words, it's not just unmerited grace when you get mercy. Oh, I'm just so glad I got treated well. But it's demerited grace. You're in a miserable, terrible condition, and you don't deserve to actually be treated with grace. Imagine a dad giving a child a toy. And maybe the child is just a little bit irritated at dad, so he destroys the toy. What mercy is, is the dad saying, I'm not just going to give you a replacement of your toy. I'm going to give you a better toy. Here's the question, though. Is mercy a demonstration of justice or injustice? Now, we've got to put our thinking caps on here. Justice, we all know, is getting a reward or a punishment that we're rightly due or we rightly deserve. That's justice. We deserve it or we did bad, and we get the punishment. Injustice is when you don't get the reward that you deserve or the punishment that you deserve. Let me tell a story that might make this simple. There was a professor who loved to teach, and he told his students only three big exams, I'm sorry, only three big papers, um, and this is when they're due. He gave the due dates. Well, like a lot of college students, I don't know if any of you Wingate have ever done this, a lot of students sort of waited for the last day, and a lot of them emailed the old prof and said, listen, prof, could you just give a bit of an extension? I mean, i got a lot going on. And the prof says, I'm going to have a little bit of mercy. Yes, of course, take an extra week. Well, the second due date came up. And when that second due date came up, a lot of the students had talked to these students that already received mercy, so a lot of the other students sort of sloughed off and said, hey, this, this prof will give an extra week. And guess what? A lot of them emailed and said, hey, could you give me that extra week? And more students, and you know, the prof said, you know what? It's a big paper. I'm going to give you mercy. Third time came around, word got out, hey, this prof, you can just allow yourself a lot of time with this guy. More people did not plan to hand it in on time. And they they came to him and said, "Um, can we get an extension? And he said, actually, no. I've already said when the date is due. If you do not give it in on this date, you will get an F. A lot of the students said, that's unfair. That is un- this is an unmerciful professor. And he says, whoa, 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 if you want justice, then I will give all of you the Fs that didn't meet the first two dates. If you want justice, if we're talking about fairness. So mercy, I hope that story shows this, is not injustice. It's actually non-justice. Mercy is not injustice. It is non-justice. Mercy is a benefit that we do not deserve. 
How can this be applied? You know, mercy shakes what I call tectonic beliefs. You know, these plates under the earth that when they shake, things above get shaped by these beliefs. I think deep down, the America that I've been raised in has taught me two, two beliefs that I think are tectonic beliefs. One of them is elitism, and the other one is entitlement. What's elitism? It means I'm favored. Hey, America's a favored place. And I'm a suburban kind of a guy. I kind of expect to enjoy the favors. Well, the other side of that is entitlement. Entitlement says I have a right to benefits. I mean, when I was growing up, the Constitution of this country has always told me that I have a right to what? Or is it the Bill of Rights? You can correct me later. Those are your historians. What do I have the right to as an American? I have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, those are my rights. So here's a question. I've been raised with entitlement, and I've been raised with uh, elitism. And this is where mercy moves in and says, Howard, you better think through this story that you've been swimming in. Because the reality is that nothing sucks the life out of things like entitlement. If you think you deserve a certain core life, parents... You ever deal with your parents, your kids, and they just think that they deserve a certain level of benefits, and you're thinking they have no thanks. Or a guy, if you take a girl out to a date and she's expecting all these benefits, and you're thinking, man, she's not even thankful. She's acting so entitled. When we act this way, it just sucks the life out of any type of grace or mercy. When we say, God, you owe me mercy, something's wrong with that. The electing mercy of God gives us the true story of the world because the true story says that we're actually all more like guilty criminals on death row. We've already learned in Romans that the wages of sin is death, not life. We're in bondage. We don't desire and are not entitled to liberty. The consequence of sin is misery, not happiness. Nothing gives life like electing grace, showering us with undeserved mercy. And, you know, there's a wonderful implication. If we really believe that we don't deserve all these benefits, but that our condition in front of God is one of misery and we deserve His judgment, we can live our lives with honest confession instead of always impression. So many of us want to impress everybody. But if we say, wait a minute, God, I can't even impress you. I can live a life of confession. I can live a life of authenticity, a life of openness. And secondly, when I realize that God doesn't need me or owe me, he's not obliged to benefit me, I finally realize that he wants me. And for many of us, and this is often for me, thinking that God really wants me, I need to I need to feel that. Like that that that's extremely important. And when we can honestly say, God, you don't even need me, you don't owe me, but you want me, that's just amazing. God is so much more merciful than we think. That's the first Instagram. Is God unfair? Oh, he's merciful at core. Here's the second one, though. God, with his electing grace, is mysterious. 
Now, mystery has a way for me. Whenever I experience something mysterious, it causes such confusion in my brain. Because if you got to know me, I'm a pretty simple person. So something mysterious gets my brain all confused. But what it does is it teases my mind into action. And I think God does that with us. I think he, he wants us to think about who he is. So in this story, let's tell it. Verse 17. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. Get this. The story of Pharaoh says he hardens whoever he wills. Do we remember the story? You got a million Israelites, supposedly chosen by God, should we trust his promises? Oh, yeah, because he's merciful. These million for 400 years, they're under bondage. They're crying out. They're getting beaten every day. Their babies are getting murdered. And God doesn't just say, I hear this. He feels it. He goes down and he says, Moses, you go to that Pharaoh and you tell that Pharaoh that Israel is like a son to me. If you don't let my son go, I will kill your son. And Moses is like, whoa, those are huge words. And God says, look, you're going to go to Pharaoh, and I'm going to harden his heart every time you tell him to let my son go. And he's going to harden his heart. So Moses does this. Moses goes to Pharaoh, and we all know, the, we all know, we all know that these plagues happen one after the other. He he does six of these in a row. Water gets turned to blood. Frogs come. There's lice, flies. The cattle die. Uh, there's boils all over everybody. And this is when Paul picks up the story. Paul picks up the story. Six plagues have happened. And back and forth and back and forth. And remember, they would have known this story and told it to their kids. They would have known every detail. And they would have known that if you read this story over 40 times back and forth... God hardens Pharaoh. Then you go to a couple more verses. Pharaoh hardened his heart after the frogs, after the lice. God hardened Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart. So they would have known the story, and the story does not remove this mystery of, God, you're so merciful. But the flip side, the shadow side of electing grace is not electing grace. Hardening. This hardening. Hardening. What, this is what goes on in my heart and my mind. Why does God not just have mercy on everybody? It isn't just puzzling intellectually for me. It's, it's emotionally disturbing at times that, that God doesn't have mercy on everybody. The opposite of mercy um, is not injustice. We talked about that. It's cruelty. It's, it's a ruthlessness. And sometimes you think, well, if God's like a doctor and he's got the cure, why wouldn't he just give it to everybody? If I were God, I would just set up mercy exhibits everywhere, I think. I wouldn't set up these justice exhibits where he hardens. I mean, of course the sinner is not worthy of mercy. I'm not worthy of mercy. But neither is the elect. The elect is not. One of the secrets of Christianity is that when my gut reactions get going, I'm not supposed to trust them. I'm not supposed to trust my gut reactions. 
The stories are given to reorient me to reality and to who God really is. So there's two truths about Harden. Number one, we see in the story, God says, in fact, he even says it first. Because some people think, oh, I'll get God off the hook. You know, I know Pharaoh hardens himself. No, it says actually God hardens him. You see that in Exodus 4, over and over. God was behind and beneath the hardening. Somebody once said, we freely will, as he has willed, that we will freely will. I'm not saying that to confuse you, but let me just say it again, because we've got to see that God is behind this mysterious hardening. We freely will, as he has willed, that we will freely will. God does harden his heart. But secondly, it says clearly, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. He's answerable for his actions. He's fully accountable. I love the uh, Tolkien story about the hobbit. And in the last book, I loved what was going on in the movie, but Peter Jackson didn't end like the book ended. Y'all remember the scene. You have Frodo, who's trying to take this ring and throw it into this, all this fire, and chasing him is Gollum. Gollum is like a, us as, our, as a human being that just says, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to harden myself. I'm going to be unyielding to what is good. And Gollum becomes this grotesque creature. And what Peter Jackson did at the end of the movie is he says, okay, I'm going to have Gollum bite his finger, get the ring, and then Frodo's going to grab onto Gollum, and Gollum's going to fall into the fire. And Peter Jackson was asked, why did you end the movie in the way that the book didn't do it? And he's like, I, the movie had to end with a hero. I mean, we're Americans. Uh, we, we've got to believe in a hero. We've got to believe that any of us can save the day. If you look at how Tolkien ends the book, it's very different. In that scene, Gollum does jump on top of Frodo, and Gollum does bite Frodo's finger. But what happens is, is Frodo is an absolute failure. He's laying there, he's grasping his hand, and Gollum, the Pharaoh figure, if you will, is so excited that he finally got the ring back. And he says in this Trinitarian ecstasy, my precious, my precious, my precious. <clears throat> and while he's so totally entranced in this focus on this, what he wants, he's so consumed, Tolkien says he gets to the edge of the fire and he sort of teeters. And he then says one last time, my precious, oh, my precious. And he forgets where he is and he topples in. In other words, what Tolkien is trying to show is that when a person is left to choose evil, the evil will implode upon itself. This is, this is actually how the ending worked. So Pharaoh did harden his own heart. God does not coerce or force our wills. We're fully responsible. Now, the wrong way to answer this is what we see in the next verse. It's quarreling, not questioning God. Look at verse 19. You'll say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what's molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Now, parents, we all know there's a very big difference between questioning authority 
and quarreling with authority. And often it's the tone. Often it's, it's the way it's said. And we definitely get this, why does he still find fault? And for, for Paul to say, oh man, who are you to answer back to God? It's a challenge that answering back, it's back talk, right? It's when we say, I don't like what I'm hearing about this authority. It's a, it's, it goes way beyond respectful reasoning or questioning. And I want to invite, we do need to have questioning of God. In fact, when we hang out on Saturday, any of you that come, we all have to be humble and be curious and say, God, help us understand who you are. But Paul, is, Paul then talks about this idea of the clay. And remember, the story of Scripture is that this clay is this contaminated sinful clay. It, it's somewhat comical that clay is saying, you better treat me the way I want to be treated and not the way I deserve to be treated. Or the clay is saying, if, if you manipulate a neutral man, then how dare you blame him? But the fact is we're not neutral, right? We're, we're sinful. He gives an illustration to remind us of our true condition. Do you see it in verse 21? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? We have to ask ourselves this question. Does the potter have the right to determine the destiny of the clay? What does our heart do when we have to answer that question? Does it question or quarrel? Notice that God doesn't create the clay just so he can destroy some of it. That's a false idea of God. In this illustration, God is the potter. He takes from the mass of sinful humanity. He chooses by his rightful authority to either pardon or to harden. Do we really understand our true condition? Because here's what it is. We are sinful. We are contaminated. We are condemned. We are not neutral. We are not forced to be guilty. I've heard people say, well, we're like puppets then. We're like robots. Oh, we flatter ourselves. Puppets, robots. We are like clay, contaminated clay. Let's not overestimate our condition. The mystery of mercy is that God in Christ would clothe himself and God would put on the clay of our humanity. He would suffer, he would die, he would rise again. And instead of Adam and all of the clay that followed Adam that was contaminated, he would be the second Adam who was going to join to himself a new humanity, choose for himself as a merciful God, a new people. The mystery of mercy is that God transforms contaminated clay into vessels of mercy. We become elaborate vases to hold flowers for our king. Now, why would he delay? Look at verse 22. What if God, or, or Paul says, look, maybe God delays, and this could be a what if on why he, he, he is who he is. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Paul says, look, I know this is mysterious, but I'll give one what if. And I, I, a lot of it's like the, the idea that when we delay things, delaying things has this mysterious way 
of actually activating our affections. Uh, I used to do this with my own kids, and all of you do it with kids. You walk up to a little kid, and you cover your eyes, and you slowly go peek, ah, boo, right? You never just walk up to the kid and go, boo. I mean, the kid's going to freak out. But you, you know that if I delay, if I make things dark, and the kid's like, where'd it go? Where's his face? If we delay and we say, peek, ah, boo, when they see our face and the sunshiny face that we give them, there's such delight and laughter. Well, I think Paul's kind of saying, look at this. God has every right to delay things, to endure, and to endure people that should just automatically be judged. He has every right to activate the affections of those of us that he has chosen to give mercy. We see this in the story of the plagues. There's three days of darkness in that ninth plague, setting us up for the tenth where they'll be rescued. We see on the cross three hours of darkness. We see Jesus in the grave three hours, I mean three days. God loves to delay and be patient to activate our affections to realize the depth of his mercy. So this is mysterious. And I like to just say that uh, Calvin's simple statement has helped me to just live here when he said, when we talk about things like electing grace and the hardening side, it's, he said this, let us not be ashamed to be ignorant in a matter in which ignorance is learning. If we try to overthink this, sometimes it's better to have our ignorance be learning. Let's not question God. Let's instead question our imperfect partial understanding of God. He is merciful to the core. The last Instagram is a quick one. We know that his electing grace is merciful. We know that his electing grace is mysterious. He is not unfair. But lastly, his electing grace is missional. Did you see it there in verse 24? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, As you heard Olga say earlier, we're going to totally camp out week after week, gather into groups to talk about being missional. What we're seeing here when we talk about this idea of, well, God goes out and he elects, check it out. He goes and he says, I'm going to go after one guy, a pagan guy named Abraham. I'm going to develop a nation, just one nation. But he says very early on, he says, Abraham, I'm going to choose you. But in Genesis 12, he says, so that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Galatians says that this is called the gospel in advance. And Chris Wright gives a very short story that helps us understand this. We think of Israel and they're chosen. And we think, you know, they, they, they got so focused on, wow, we're loved, we're cherished, we're now entitled, we're now elite. And God's intention was never that they would hoard and become introvertish with that mercy. His intention that they would always be a channel, a channel of that electing grace to all the nations. And Chris Wright says this, imagine a little group of people and they are stuck in this cavern and they cannot get out. But one individual is so small and so scrawny that he is elected to get out of this little cavern and he can squeeze out. That's like Israel. Small, not a lot, nothing impressive. 
The goal, though, was not that the little dude would get out and say, I'm elect. The goal is that the little dude would go, I can now go get help. I can now say, there are more people. All the nations are in this cavern. We've got to go back in. So God's electing grace when it says in this verse, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This is exciting for Redeemer. Because here we are in 2014 saying, oh my goodness. If this merciful, mysterious, electing grace of God has been given to me, I have a purpose. I have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. God never intended to, do, to stay with this little nation. His intention was to be international and global with his grace. And I'm very excited about what's going to be happening uh, in our church in the next couple of months. So is God unfair? Do we believe the picture that was just painted for us by Paul with these Instagrams? This is the true story of the world. God, in his sweet sovereignty, exercises electing grace that is merciful. It's mysterious, but it's also missional. A lot of you, I could see by your smiles when I told the opening story, knew that I stole that story, didn't I? Who was the original person that inspired that story? came from Jesus. He told a story one day, very similar, and he concluded the story, and I'll conclude with his words, when people started to complain and say, I've been out in the sun, and this is unfair. This is what Jesus said to those group of workers. Friend, I'm not treating you unfairly. Didn't you agree with me on a day's wages? Take your money and go. I want to give this last worker as much as I gave you. Can't I do what I want with my own money? Or do you resent my generosity towards others? Let's pray. Father, for many of us, this may be just a doctrine that we've learned. You elect, you predestinate. I thank you that your word is a story. And then instead of Paul giving a hundred facts, he gave some stories where we got to get a fresh taste of your mercy. Help us to believe that you want us, that we're undeserving and you still want us. Help us to believe that in the mystery, you are good. Help us as a church to see the nations full of people that you have your electing grace already on, just waiting to activate. Send us out to find them. Send us out to be the rescue, the rescue mission for these people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand with us. When I see the beauty of a sunset's glory, amazing artistry, Across the evening sky When I feel the mystery Of a distant galaxy 
It all's and humbles me to be loved by a God so high. What can I do but thank you? What can I do but give my life to you? Hallelujah.